0: It's just martial law. Anybody that speaks against the dictator or the country is is going to be put in peril.
1: You know, we're three years away from a presidential election. I mean, things go to hell in a handbasket sometimes, a crazy season, a few months before the presidential election. We're three years away.
2: I'm confident that we've rooted out the corruption and we can we can move forward and, um, you know, have a really productive and efficient narcotics operation that the community can trust.
3: You're listening to
4: Pod Sui, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Danny Fenster, a journalist from Berkeley who has been in prison in Myanmar since May, has been resentenced to 11 years. Fenster, who has been charged with having contact with a terrorist organization and incitement, was originally thought to be facing three to seven years. So what changed and what can be done about freeing Denny and bringing him home? Attorney Todd Flood with Kevin Dietz. The
0: the Counterterrorism Act is not a three to seven year penalty. It's actually ten to life, ten years to life. So, in reading their their sentencing guidelines uh, and what the charges are, those two new charges, um, those are very scary charges. And it, you know, having to bone up a little bit and and study where where in this lies, you know, as far as how they treat these trials. They're behind closed doors. They're in the prison themselves. It's, there is no due process per se. His attorney um, is at a complete loss right now for why the charges are taking place. This is a case really where it's all about diplomacy. It's all about backdoor room deals with the, um, with the United States government and diplomats to try to put some pressure in play or negotiation in play because the fate of um, this report, this young man who is from Berkeley, Michigan, albeit, um, is uh, Mr. Fenster is is really grim um, because it's it's not it's not jurisprudence as we know it here in the United States. This is just martial law and a uh, you know obviously. Uh, this country was taken over in a coup back in February. So th- they're just a military group. Anybody that speaks against the dictator or the country is is going to be put in peril. Uh, they just sentenced a, a, a man that 85 years of age uh, who was just found guilty to life um, or speaking up against uh, the Uh, Burmese uh, um, countries. So it's it's a serious and grave situation and one that our State Department and diplomacy is going to have to resolve because it's definitely not going to be resolved in a military courtroom behind closed doors in a prison cell.
5: So one day, Danny Fenster is out reporting, uh, telling stories and writing stories. And the next day, he's he's apprehended and he's a suspect of of terrorism. Um, Is this um, is this strictly a message to all other journalists that they better not write things that the the people in power uh, don't like? For sure, it's a
0: message. Um, I mean, it's even more attenuated into that. He was working for one news outlet about a year ago, and that news outlet is uh, the news outlet that um, is accused of being uh, harsh against the government and more for, you know civility in certain certain ways with just all due respect to life. Left that newspaper went to work, has been working for another outlet, another magazine, and in turn, the, the, when he's trying to come home, he's boarding a plane, he's arrested and being charged for his association with the previous employment, with the previous employer as a newspaper reporter, magazine editor. Um, so yes, is it a message? Loud and clear. You know, and the State Department has said so. Uh, You can go to the State Department's website and they will tell you, you know, basically stay away from this region um, because of uh, the severity of of what can happen there and under martial law. Uh, And there's no due process. And and obviously, uh, they have no respect for the United States. So it's a very grave situation. And yes, to say a message is to say the least.
4: 19 congressional Republicans broke with their party last weekend to pass Joe Biden's infrastructure bill. Many now facing backlash. One of those Republicans is Congressman Fred Upton from the west side of the state, who released a threatening, profanity-laden voicemail his office received on CNN during his appearance with Anderson Cooper, which warmed him up nicely for his conversation with Guy Gordon. You f- piece of f- trash, mother. F- word for dumb ass
1: f- by- You're stupider than he is. He can't even complete a f- sentence. You dumb mother. F- Traitor, piece of piece of trash hope you die hope your family dies hope everybody staff dies it is a sorry state of affairs uh, to get calls like that one and we all could despite the beeps we know what the, the guy was saying and it's you know we remarked that you know we have caller id thank goodness this guy's not a michigander uh he's from south carolina and guess what his favorite senator in all likelihood, is Lindsey Graham, the closest friend to in the Senate to former President Trump. He also voted for it uh, back in August. So as you're you, you know, it's you know, we, we, we see this, you know, polarization, but stuff like this is just over the top. Uh, and, so- you know, for, for me, I'm I was a former staffer. You know, I got young people answering the phone. I mean, this is this is not the type of stuff anybody ever wants to hear.
6: Well, and I, I know you've got pretty broad shoulders, but you do feel badly for your staff, and you worry for them. And after what happened to Steve Scalise and others, uh, you worry about whether these people will act on this. Um, who who do you hold responsible for for that? Call and others like it because there was some timing with tweets from your colleagues that were pretty inflammatory. Uh, Are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene responsible for that?
1: Yeah, she really is. I mean, she put our names out. uh, Not that it's uh, you know a secret vote; it wasn't, uh, but our phone numbers. And uh, we actually, because of the threats, we actually closed our office, uh, this one of Michigan offices, uh, early earlier this week. Um, You know, we got well over a thousand calls, uh, and, um, most of them were out of the, the, the really nasty ones were most of all of them were out of state. Uh, and most of the calls were out of state, but yeah, she's, she's responsible for that and, um, put us all, as you would say, under the gun.
6: And what is leadership saying about that? What is McCarthy's office saying about it? Have, have you heard from him? And are they backing well,
1: you up? Well, so far it's crickets.
6: Uh, no
1: statements uh, at all.
6: Speak to this notion that seems to have gotten so much traction that any bill that can possibly be used for political advantage by the Democrats or by Joe Biden must be rejected. That seems to be a growing dogma among the far right in, in, in the party and even apparently from leadership. What, where does that leave us in terms of gridlock and getting anything done if you if you run with that, and if you run with it, and, and are not flexible to some degree,
1: well, you know what? You hit the nail on the head. Um, that's what it is. And this is, you know, we're three years away from a presidential election. I mean, things go to hell in a handbasket sometimes—a crazy season a few months before the presidential election. But we're three years away. We need to govern. I mean, I know we you know we have a fifty-fifty Senate, and Speaker Pelosi has only a three-vote margin in the in the House. But that doesn't mean everything should just stop. I mean, do we not have infrastructure needs? I mean, traditionally, and when I was first elected, I got on the transportation committee, uh, roads and highways, it was always bipartisan. And look how we've slipped now uh, to where we had this uh, vote this weekend and the nasty partisanship, real threats, physical threats uh, to uh, a number of us that supported the bipartisan bill. Uh, it's just off the wall.
4: Detroit Police Chief James White announced steps the city is taken to weed out corrupt towing practices in the city. The scandal, which has taken down some high-ranking members of the Police and City Council, is a problem that Chief White says goes back many years, and he details the reforms with Paul W. Smith.
2: You know, we've we put in a number of reforms that you know are necessary. One of the things that I looked at is what allowed uh, people to... Uh, Those that have been accused and some have been convicted and some have actually uh, uh, took a plea. You know, what did they do? What processes were they able to manipulate in order, uh, you know, to to do the things that they did? And in that we built a system around that uh, to hopefully uh, create a situation where people can't do the same thing or at the very least give us some audit trails. Uh, to any irregularities where we can hold folks accountable uh, and root out any uh, potential corruption. Uh, But the biggest thing, the two biggest pieces of this, I think that going forward, which will prove beneficial for the department is taking police officers out of towing. I don't think we should have been there in the first place. I, you know, I don't know the origins of, of all of that many, many years ago. And then bring in a code enforcement unit. Now, certainly this code enforcement unit will be part of the police department, but it'll be an additional layer uh, supervised by uh, a civilian director who will bring, uh, you know, some, some normalcy to the process from from the standpoint of having a process of evaluation, the, the evaluation of the tours individually to make sure that they're following our policies, to make sure that they're following uh, the ordinances of the city, uh, and then give an extension to the police department where any irregularities can be investigated by an investigative body. And I think that's going to be a key component. I think you're right. And uh, again, I salute you with coming out uh, so quickly with your fixes of a problem you inherited. Meanwhile, uh, also inherited police chief uh, James White, uh, this uh, two year internal affairs probe into alleged corruption in the Detroit police drug unit. And uh, that uh, that investigation is drawn to a close. And you think you you've kind of rooted out the problem there as well yeah you know I, I give uh, chief uh, former Chief James Craig a lot of credit uh, for having the vision to to start this task force and to really look at what was happening within the police department. Um, looking at uh, some of the issues in narcotics. He had a you know a tremendous amount of experience working uh, in other agencies, and so he recognized right out the gate uh, you know that there were some problems with some processes. So uh, yes, I inherited the 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 investigation I inherited. Uh, a lot of the 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 end of the work, but uh, he launched that program. And after reviewing uh, an extremely comprehensive report uh, by our professional standards, um, I was I was concerned about a number of different processes. And so what we built in that was a another audit trail. You have to inspect what you expect. Um, but then we put in some new supervision uh, because a lot of these issues really center around. Uh, supervisory oversight and accountability and so we made some leadership changes there we built some audit trails and uh, uh, we prepared that report which uh, we're going to be releasing to the community as well as to the media soon it's it's, um, in review right now and uh, we should have it prepared right probably uh, Thanksgiving weekend uh, for release and it's a it's a pretty interesting read but we think it's important to release that report for transparency standpoint and to let the community know you know what we found and how we're going about fixing that. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, I, I think what we have in place now uh, with some of the uh, warrants that have been submitted to the prosecutor's office, some of the collaboration with the FBI, the state police, attorney general's office, Wayne County prosecutor's office, uh, and the U.S. attorney's office, uh, and they they have been just you know really supportive and helpful with getting search warrants up for us and things like that. I'm confident that we've rooted out the corruption and we can we can move forward and, um, you know, have a really productive and, and, and uh, efficient narcotics operation that the community can trust.
4: The medical community is on high alert as the state teeters on the edge of becoming a COVID hotspot once again, possibly experiencing a dreaded fourth wave. Top hospital officials are warning that they are near capacity. Dr. Nick Gilpin, Beaumont's Health Director of Infection Prevention and Epidemiology, is one of them, and here he is with Kevin Dietz.
3: We had a nice summer. And one of the things that I like to track is the percentage of positive tests in the community. That's kind of a good metric for, for us. It sort of translates well to what's going on in the hospital. June, July, our percentage of positive tests in the community was around 1%, extremely low. So we had a great summer. You could go outside. You could mingle with your friends It felt like we were getting back to normal. Then starting in around early August, those community numbers started to tick up. We got to around 3%, 4%, 5%. Once you clip up past 5%, then you are in a period of moderate transmission. So now you've got to start to modify your behavior a little bit. And what we saw at that same time was hospitalization started to go up at around the same time. And we've just kind of been living in this, I call it a slow burn, for about the last two months where – We started at around 100 patients in the hospital, then we got up to around 200, then around 250. And then something funny happened, not funny, but in the last week or so, we went from around 300 cases to, as of this morning, we're now over 430. So we jumped significantly in the last few days. And the numbers in the community are starting to look exactly the same. The percentage positivity in the Metro Detroit area has now jumped over 10%. So that means we have gone from low transmission in the summer, moderate transmission in the fall, and now we're in high transmission.
5: Is this weather related? Is this the fact that we're not outside and, and, and we're now inside? Uh, kids are back in school. Uh, yep. People are out maybe in the mall shopping. Is it, is it indoors that's the, the
3: problem? Well, I think you can probably pin three things, um, three major things. And, and there could be other factors here, but I'll, I'll give you what I think are the big three. For starters, yes. Colder weather makes conditions more favorable for the virus to move around. It's pushing people indoors. We know indoor activities are, you know, by virtue of being indoors, it's a little more risky. Uh, So that definitely plays a role here. We know that we still have a significant proportion of unvaccinated people in the community as well, especially in Metro Detroit. There's still pockets of places where there's not a lot of people vaccinated. We know that's gonna drive transmission. Um, And then the other the other factor, I think, is that there's been this perception nationwide that COVID cases have actually been in decline. And that's true if you look at the nation as a whole. But that's not true for areas like Metro Detroit, where we live. We are definitely still seeing plenty of COVID cases. If you go down south, you don't see as much COVID down there right now. Warmer weather, more people doing things outdoors. COVID seems to be more manageable in our neck of the woods. It's a bigger problem.
5: Yeah, down in Florida, the, the COVID numbers were, were high when it was really hot in Florida. You know, it gets yep. up over a hundred and people don't go outside. They're, they're actually inside in the summer more in Florida and they're outside now when the weather is beautiful. We're, we're kind of the opposite and we kind of see those numbers flip-flop, uh, you know, with the weather. Um, I, I wanted to ask you with, with, with the surge of, of people coming into the hospital up to 430, now, um, last last couple of days. Uh, are those unvaccinated people or vaccinated people, or do we know?
3: Good question. We are predominantly an unvaccinated uh, surge right now. So when I say predominantly, I'm, I'm talking, I track this every day, and we run usually around 65 to 70% of our COVID patients in any of our hospitals at any given time are unvaccinated. And the remaining 30 or 35% that are vaccinated some of them are just incidentally positive. They may have very mild symptoms. They may be here for other reasons, like, like uh, you know, appendicitis or trauma, and they just happen to test positive for COVID. Or they may be people who we know. Uh, The vaccine is less likely to be effective in older people, people with immune compromising conditions. So there's usually some explanation for why a vaccinated person ends up in the hospital with COVID versus the unvaccinated patients. Those are the ones that I'm the most concerned about. They're the ones who seem to when they get COVID and they get hospitalized, they seem to have a much more difficult time.
4: Guy Gordon opened the phone lines on Veterans Day to give his listeners a chance to honor a veteran in their lives who deserve more recognition, and this phone call won the day.
6: Let's get to Ed in Royal Oak. He's got somebody he wants to salute. Hello, Ed.
4: Hi, how you doing?
7: Uh, I want to give you a little background. I was in the the Army in the late uh, 60s, I'm sorry, and I have a grandson who's currently 22. He signed up for six years, and he's got a year and a half to go, and every year he texts me, he says, Grandpa, what did you get this year besides a uh, Coney dogs and uh, Mission Barbecue and a free haircut? So he sent me a, a text this morning, and it says, happy, happy Veterans Day, Grandpa. There was a ceremony this morning that we did on the mess decks. He's on, a, he's on a carrier, by the way, out to sea. I really okay. appreciate attending, and all, all I ever wanted for the military is to become a veteran. So I hold this day very dear to me. During during someone's speech, they said that veterans can celebrate with friends and family, eat hamburgers and hot dogs while we are on guard standing our watches. I was thinking about how close we are to getting Coney dogs, Coney Island, and barbecues at Mission Barbecue, that we can someday close talk about our military experiences together. I'm looking forward to being a veteran right beside you, Grandpa. Thank you for your service in the Army for the, at the, of the United States. I love you, Grandpa. Have a great rest of the day, soldier. Love, Blake. And I read Ed. that thing about ten times today and was really touched.
6: Oh, Ed, thank you so much for sharing that. And you've got tears streaming down my cheeks. And I've got to tell you, I envy you the bond that you're going to have with that young man when he comes back.
7: I agree. I agree totally
6: what a great blessing thanks for sharing that Ed. and please tell that young man that we thank him for his service and we look I'll forward to that. wishing him a happy happy veterans
4: day when he comes home they'll do for pod Sui this week for full episodes or anything else you might have missed go to the see you next time